Hello, and thank you for listening to the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Ava Thanheiser, and today I'm talking with Corey from the University of Missouri and Sing Young from the University of Alabama. We will be discussing the article, Developing Skills for Exploring Children's Thinking, from extensive one-on-one work with students. Published in the September 2021 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more depth the lessons they shared in the article, their successes and challenges, and how these lessons relate to their work. Could you both take a minute to introduce yourselves, full names, where you're from, what you do kind of thing? My name is Corey Webel, and I'm an associate professor of mathematics education at the University of Missouri in the College of Education and Human Development, and it's, I think, my ninth year here. Hello, thanks for having us. I'm Singhan Yeo, and I am assistant professor at the University of Alabama. I'm teaching a master's course for elementary math education. Also in an education department, I'm assuming? Yeah, in the College of Education. Let's get started. Can you guys give us a brief summary of the article, including the results? Sure. So this was a project that uh, grew out of our work as teacher educators. So in our methods courses, we, we do kind of a hybrid at the University of Missouri. And, and this project stems from when uh, Singhyun was a, a graduate student. So he was working in this course with me. And so we do a hybrid where we do content and methods kind of together. And like a lot of methods courses, we try to hook into the field placements that students are, are in as a part of their program. And we've done a lot of assignments over the years where we try to have our pre-service teachers engage with students in conversations about their mathematical thinking. And we just happened to have a, a school reach out to us and say, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you host your methods class on our campus. And have your students really be engaged in a daily basis within the processes of the school and the students that, you know, their mathematical students that were kind of needing opportunities to, to work on their mathematics more. So we had some reservations about that, but we decided that, you know, the, the opportunity to really have our students work with our pre-service teachers work with students in kind of an immersed way, an extensive way where they're really meeting with students. Basically, they were meeting five days a week with these, with these what we ended up calling math buddies. And we just thought that would be a really good opportunity for them to develop their skills for interacting with students. And that's what we did. And, and the paper talks about the kind of uh, structure we put around that, those interactions and how we set that up. And then we, we basically had them record screencasts with iPads, devices, as they inter- interacted with students. And then we analyzed those interactions over time. And so if, what we'd, one thing we did in the paper was we looked at their first interaction with the students and then their interactions at the end of the semester with the math buddies. And we analyzed those for what we called exploring student thinking, which is kind of a subset of what my colleague Susan Empson and, and Vicki Jacobs have uh, have developed within their kind of responsive teaching model. So within that is a exploring student thinking. So we wanted to see whether pre-service teachers got better at exploring student thinking over the course of the semester. And so in the paper, we kind of give some holistic results and we show that there was, there was some improvements. We also saw some students who, for a variety of reasons that we talk about in the paper, either didn't really show much improvement or, or some of them showed, you know, stronger 
interactions at the beginning of the semester and, and not as strong towards the end. But overall, we saw some nice growth uh, amongst all of the, the students in the course. And I was saying, you want to add anything to that? That sounds really interesting. And I can't wait to dig into, into it in more detail. First, who do you think should read your paper? Like, who's your audience? I think the audience is mostly teacher educators, uh, folks who teach Methodist courses, who are thinking about, especially thinking about this. I think there's always a perpetual challenge between these two, some people call it the two worlds pitfall. You've got this world of the university where you're engaging students in trying to learn some skills, they're learning some mathematical ideas, they're learning how to interpret kids' thinking, noticing, a lot, a lot of things we're trying to do, and then they're often placements. And I, as a teacher educator, I've always one, I always never had a good sense of what they were learning in their field placement and to what extent does it interact with the kinds of things we're talking about in our methods classes. And once they graduate, once they leave and go off, is the stuff that we do in our methods classes going to have an impact on what they do and what's the influence of that, of that context? So this gave us a chance to be in the school and kind of understand a little bit about what that context was. And I think especially these cases where you have folks who seem to demonstrate some of the skills that we were talking about, or they, they could, they had the capacity to do that, but in some interactions didn't do that. Like we saw them in some interactions, they were capable of exploring students thinking, but they, they kind of chose not to in certain contexts. And that was really interesting for thinking about in the future. In the future, if, they, if we develop these skills and they go out into schools, will there be reasons why they will choose, or maybe it's not even a conscious choice, but they just don't use those skills for contextual reasons or for, for other kinds of reasons. And so that, that's something I think I want to keep thinking about in terms of research, but I also love other math educators were also kind of exploring those questions as well. Yeah, I can add on something. Currently, I'm teaching also uh, elementary math methods course, but it was really difficult to find enough room for connecting method course with a placement under the many limited conditions. Our students have a two days field placement every week. So, but um, one thing I'm doing is like uh, uh, providing a task with a three-step interview with an actual student, but it is just like one student and then two story problems with an interview. So it is uh, like a still very limited, but as a, like a novice teacher educator, uh, after rereading re this paper, I got an idea that my current assignments might be extended a series of interview assignments for them to provide more continuous, continuous exercise or practices for a preserved teacher. That's why I think another novice or experienced teacher educator and also like the office of a field placement or school administrator can also have a good insight from this paper. In addition, I experienced my teacher education program at South Korea. Uh, we exactly have the two words issue between the local schools and the university because uh, we just like uh, give our preserved teacher to local school and they handle all the situation about the placement during the two weeks or four weeks like that. But I think this kind of model can be implemented to other countries as well to make a supportive partnership and relationship and make our preserved teacher prepare, prepared better. So, so therefore, therefore, international mathematics teacher educator can be also audience of this article. That's a great point. One, just one other thing I'll add is the use of the screencast. I think that was really a great way to get insight. It was easy. I mean, it was a little bit tricky to kind of set up in the beginning, but once they got used to the technology and got used to putting these screencasts on, 
we just had this amazing resource to really understand what was happening in those interactions. And then we would be able to give feedback directly on those. So here we saw this interaction and we, they could, you know, could, could submit it through our uh, learning management system and we could give feedback right uh, directly after that, after that screencast. So that was a tool. That's a tool. I think um, other teacher educators. Tell us a little bit more about what a screencast is. It's basically just a, a whiteboard on a screen. So you, you can do it on any kind of tablet device and there's a variety of different ones. We've played with different ones but it records audio and then anything they write, anything anyone writes on the screen. So as our pre-service teachers were interacting with students, the students would be drawing a picture of the, you know, to represent the task they're trying to solve. And then you would hear the question and answer and the explanations. And so you got a really good sense of what this interaction looked like. And you could see kind of the drawing too, as it got um, created and how, and, you know, it was, it was interesting because in the paper, we talk about a time where the pre-service teacher kind of takes over the drawing for the student and you can, you can see it because the handwriting changes, it gets a lot neater. And so you can tell, you know, when that kind of takeover move um, happened because you can actually see that screencast as it's happening in real time. Yeah, there's an additional feature of the, this kind of a digital whiteboard app. So there's a various uh, similar apps, but education we use has also another uh, feature, which is to manage the online classroom with this tool. So you can share your video with your students and also your students can unload or share any videos with an instructor. So this allowed to kind of flip learning or like a, a process basis, like evaluations. So this is how we collected our main uh, data for this study. So they created problem serving uh, interview videos with their math buddies and they unloaded those education videos. So those for a free service teacher, this these clips provide like a vivid memories for reflecting what they did with their uh, students based on the video. And for researcher, we can also access how each specific teacher actually uses teaching moves in the moment in terms of like a takeover, supporting, extending. And we can also analyze like a actual student's responses. They're struggling or they're uh, easily solved the problem like that. So it is really a dynamic tool. So it sounds like there's three things happening. One is the connection between the university and the schools. One is the making sense of kids thinking. And then one is the screencast thing. So there's really like a whole bunch, which leads me nicely into my next question, which I guess focuses this. What is the problem of practice that you are addressing in your article? Like I mentioned, this the more holistic vision is just a responsive teaching kind of set of skills. And I mean, most folks who, who teach these kinds of courses are familiar with, you know, incoming students have a idea of what mathematics teaching looks like and feels like from their own experiences. It's often very different than that kind of responsive teaching vision that we're kind of hoping to, to um, expose them to and, and help them develop those skills. And so, you know, there's kind of an instinctive, you know, a student solves a problem and they get the wrong answer. And so there's a very instinctive like, okay, well, I will tell them what they did wrong and have them practice it again and try to get it. That's like the instinctive thing to do. And so we're trying to kind of almost reprogram like, or at least like give other options. So that's one thing you could do. But some other things you could do is ask the student to explain some more, or ask the student to tell you how they got the answer or, or to say whether they, how strongly they uh, believe that answer is correct or justify the reasoning they got to that answer. And so we're trying to, to give them some other options for what to do when students do various things. One of the interesting findings we found was that we saw kind of improvements in how 
these pre-service teachers explored students' thinking more in cases where students got incorrect solutions. So we saw more improvement in that case. But when students kind of solved the problem easily and got the answer, we saw basically the same distribution of whether, you know, they were kind of exploring their thinking or not exploring their thinking. We just see a lot of, a lot of like overall improvement in those cases, which raises some questions about like, maybe it's just harder to know what to do when students get the answer right. It's like, oh, they got the answer right. I guess we'll move on. And we tried to talk about things like extending questions and how do you get them to still go back and kind of explain why they think that's true, or maybe even asking a different task that's related to the one that they did that kind of pushes the thinking a little bit more. That may just be a harder thing to do, or maybe like we just didn't focus on that as much. That kind of raised some questions for us that we didn't see. So like a different pattern in those cases than we saw when students struggled. But we were encouraged that they did seem to have a a bigger repertoire of things to do when students struggle. And from a preserve teacher's perspective, like they can anticipate like how solve these problems and then they also get the answer. But it is really difficult if your students say, I don't know. Like uh, they never thought about like uh, how cannot solve this problem like that. Maybe they can think about that. So it is really important to give such kind of experience for them or like actual real experience. So as you, in this paper, we reported like uh, if your students struggle in the beginning of the video, there's uh, no exploring. But in the end of a video, there's like a more, a lot of students change the, their responsiveness. So we believe like this responsiveness can be taught. However, if they want to really change their like mindset or disposition, then it needs like some required like experience like that. So that's kind of the another key part why we provide like these volume of the interactions and times for with kids. Like I think that's without experience, it might be really difficult to develop that. So let's talk a little bit. I think when we started, you mentioned Susan Empson and Vicky Jacobs. Let's talk a little bit more about what literature you built on as you developed your intervention. We've also been pretty influenced. So there's kind of this noticing literature and this responsive teaching literature that really kind of decomposes practice into some various things. And especially they have, Sung-hyun was mentioning, supporting and extending moves. So like supporting is before the student gets the correct answer and extending is after they get the correct answer and consisting of, I think, questioning kinds of, you know, eliciting thinking that, you know, tell me more about who you were thinking. And again, I think, I think it's really about a repertoire. Like instead of having only one thing you can do, now I have four things I can do and I can think about what would be the most productive to do in this situation. Or also I think uh, provides the idea that I can learn from what I'm asking students to do. Like I'm actually learning when I'm talking to students, as opposed to I'm just telling students what to do, I'm not actually learning anything. So you're developing like kind of a curiosity about stu- student thinking as well. Another sort of body of literature that's influenced us a lot, it doesn't show up as much in this particular paper, but it's kind of the literature on, um, on rehearsals and like a, a cycle of, oh shoot, I'm gonna <laughs> forget the, the exact uh, terminology, a cycle of enactment, I think, within this like rehearsal process. So we did incorporate that with these, these math buddies. So we did some initial interactions, you know, one-on-one interactions with each other, you know, one person playing the role of a student, one person playing the role of the teacher and kind of playing out different possibilities. What if the student can't start the problem? What would you do then? What if the student does some work, but then gets stuck? And now how are you going to respond? What if the student solves it easily and tried to have them rehearse some of those scenarios and have developed this repertoire in kind of a safer environment before they had to actually work with kids. 
And so we had them record those as well. And then we actually shared some of those with the whole class. Let's talk about this interaction. Let's talk about the responses and what are, you know, how did the, what did the, what was the effect of this response? How did this draw more thinking out of the student? How did this continue to position the student as competent? So that's another kind of body of literature that's informed um, some of this, some of the work that we did. Practice basis teacher education. Yeah. Let's yeah. jump into the innovation a little bit more. And um, I'm assuming that the innovation, there's like, again, a bunch of things that we could think that what is your innovation but this one-on-one in-depth work is really part of what is new about what you're publishing, right? Combined with the screencasting. So tell us a little bit more about how did this work? It was a really kind of exciting opportunity that just fell into our laps where a principal reached out and said, you know, we'd, we'd love, and he was kind of on the lines of like, we need more. He'd, he'd come from like a Title I building. He was not in a Title I building. He was used to having more math sort of specialists around and more kind of, you know, people to, to work with students who were struggling. We didn't necessarily just want to work with, with students who were designated as struggling, but we just thought, you know, if we can work with kids more, get more, uh, and especially along the lines of these like practice spacing, we get more practice, more feedback, more engagement, this will feel more authentic, right? It won't be just this kind of artificial assignment, go out and talk to one, a kid one time, just I like Singhuman was mentioning as a very limited kind of opportunity. So we had our methods class on campus on this at the school. We met every day at the school. So they would come to school. There was a little stuff in the beginning of the day, and then they meet with their math buddy for 30 minutes. And we were usually there on those days, or at least the days when we had class. We had class two two days a week. And we would kind of just meander around as they were working with their math buddies. We would sit in and some have some, you know, conversations with the students and with the pre-service teachers as they're having these conversations. We actually evolved over the course of the project. We started off pretty rigid about what they were going to do with those math buddies. Like we're going to do story problems. You need to do a story problem. And here's, you know, because we, we were really building the course around number and operations. So this kind of like story problems that involved, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And then over the course of time, we, we loosened up a bit, especially in that spring semester. We really let them kind of have some say, the pre-service teachers have some say, because they were in the classes too with these students. These students were drawn from the classes they were observing. So they knew what the teachers was working on. They knew that, you know, if we were covering, and there was some frustration expressed in the first semester where, you know, our students are, our, our students are really struggling with this concept, but you're making me do a story problem. And I'd really love to help them with this other concept that they're working on in class. So we ended up loosening up that a bit. As far as the structure goes, they would work with their math buddies for about a half hour, and then they would come to our class. That's two days a week that you had class, right? And then what about the other two days? So the other days they were, they still did their math buddies. And then they would, they would also, they had their, you know, other methods classes were also on site. So all of their, all of their classes were on site at that school. So they Uh, would spend all day, every day at the school. Basically, I, I think we negotiated. It, it was a lot. So that second semester, that spring semester, we negotiated that we would they, they on Fridays. I think their Friday class was back on campus and they didn't come to the elementary school on Fridays. But yeah, Monday through Thursday, they were at the school from basically eight to two. And so if I'm one pre-service teacher, I'm assigned to one teacher to kind of spend my time in one teacher's class or do I rotate around? They were mostly with one teacher. So, so they, they actually paired this with a read. So they had math buddies, they had reading buddies. And so they didn't, I can't remember exactly if they had the, I don't think they had the same because their reading buddy was at a different grade level than their math buddies. Math buddies were all third through fifth grade and reading buddies were all K to two. So they did spend some time in the other teacher's class from their, where their other buddy was coming from. So just they had a sense of what that, that, um, that. And who chose the students that they worked with? 
the teachers did. This was, again, a point of negotiation. We didn't want to be seen as like, you know, tutoring, the intervention, the remediation for students who teachers thought were struggling. And we wanted to be supportive. We wanted to, for the teachers to feel like we were there to support what they were trying to accomplish as well. And so we gave the teacher, teacher pretty broad, a pretty broad uh, criteria. We just said, uh, a student who you think would benefit from some additional conversations about mathematics. And so some students that did math buddies were students who, you know, I, I, don't, I don't actually know how the teachers thought about it, but I think some students, teachers thought this is a student who's, who's pretty advanced and is kind of not getting, could, could benefit from like some additional, like more, more I don't know, challenging or, or extensions on what we're doing in class. And some students, you know, it was tough to figure out how to advise teachers on how to, how to pick those students. We didn't want to reinforce kind of the ability grouping kinds of things that, that happen in a lot of schools where you're separating out kids based on, you know, their achievement and stuff. So for this study, the students were in your math methods class two days a week, and they talked with the same third through fifth grade student every day for 30 minutes, four days a week throughout the semester. That's right. And that's the data you, you used for the study. Right. So, so they recorded those conversations and some, they had to submit a few and then they often they just recorded and we encouraged them to just record any conversations um, that they were having. So, I think so range, what was your research question? I don't know, maybe pull out paper to get the exact wording, but basically we wanted to know if they showed improvement in their responsive teacher, their, their, their use of exploring teaching, or sorry, um, exploring student thinking over the course of the semester. That was kind of the main thing for this paper that, that we looked at. And then we also wanted to know kind of what would explain some of those patterns. If there were patterns where people showed improvement, we might explain that if there were patterns where they kind of just stayed in this superficial exploration was one of our categories. What were some explanations for that? And so you already hinted at the fact that there was some change. So can you respond to how you use the data that you collected to answer this research question? After we collect the data, we transcribe their videos based on like a initial video and the, the final video to see their like holistic change of their uh, responsiveness. So we use a uh, categories. Uh, there are three categories. The first one is not exploring student thinking. The second one is a superficial exploration of a children's thinking. The last one is a explorer children thinking. So we so they're like a overall change between initial and the final video. Then we got the number and uh, more generally most of the students have improvement for uh, explore responsiveness. And then uh, we choose like uh, some representative cases from uh, like uh, some improvement cases. Some principal teacher has some improvement about their responsiveness Versus like uh, some student has a still very limited responsiveness for with the children. So we made us, we use like Jacobson Ambrose, uh, the coding scheme from 2018 paper. So if they have a, like a, a struggle, from, yeah, if they get prior to student getting the correct answer, uh, what kind of a supporting moves they can do, such as like ensuring the child understand the problems or changing the mathematics in the problem to match students' level or exploring what they've done so far, something like that. And then we also analyze the, if they, the child get the right answer, 
how the preserve teacher can extend, such as like promoting reflection about their strategies or encouraging a child to explore multiple strategies or sometimes connecting to the other students' notation like that. So these are some like uh, more specific teaching moves they do. We analyze that and we choose like one case of a preserve teacher each for the improvement and the sustaining. And we analyze like uh, their first video and the last video. And then the a series of videos they develop uh, uploaded on the education. So that's how we analyze the data. Yeah, one of the things that um... You know, Sinkhune was mentioning where we analyzed for some of those cases, we looked really like coded every single move that they made in their interaction. And then in the paper, we have these, uh, we use MaxQDA as our software and they have like a, can't remember the term for it, but a, a way of representing the coding with these like uh, time maps. And so we have this, like, you see like their first one and we coded, you know, green was uh, the exploring moves or extending moves and the Red was takeover moves. And I think there was another category. Blue was like a neutral category. And you just saw this. Here's a depiction of this with all the, and it just kind of started to describe. You got to look at the paper, but it's got like, you know, the time of the uh, kind of a timeline of the whole uh, interaction. And you put these next to each other and you see this one's just got all this red in it. And this one's got mostly green and a little bit of blue. And you really see a nice contrast. Yeah, those images are pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty cool feature that uh, that we discovered in MaxQDA. To I mean, you just look at those side by side and go, "Wow, this really looks like a different interaction." You, know, you can read all the text and you can see that too, but just right. that visual is kind of nice. So, what if you had to sum up? What is the contribution that you are making to our field with this paper? I would say, on the positive side, this kind of exploring student thinking is a teachable skill. I think there's a lot of literature to kind of back that up, and that you know these opportunities to engage with kids and get feedback on these interactions is one way to develop that skill. Some of the caveats that I, that I want to keep thinking about, you know, they were with these students a lot. I mean, it's like, it was, you know, these like four times a week. And, and so like, there was almost a sense of week. It was hard for us to keep up with the feedback and trying to, you know, we would see things happening and you can't comment on everything that's happening. And some things you're concerned about, you're like, well, that was heavy takeover that I saw in that. And like, we want to really unpack that, but you're like, you're doing this every day. So they kind of build up. And I think in a, in a future iteration of this, I might want to actually, maybe we did, it was too much, too much interaction. Like it was really nice to have it, but did we have enough time to really thoughtfully plan what this interaction was going to be about? And really like, take it apart and debrief it and think about all the things that happened. And we had so much, it was just like going on to the next one. So I think that was, that was challenging. I think another one is we really thought about this interaction between the contexts. We were there and we wrote about this in a, in a conference paper where this has to do with like the students and what they, you know, what their capability of doing is and what they actually chose to do. And so, you know, we would watch and there's, there's one of the cases in the, in the paper where there's like a pretty heavy takeover towards the end of the semester and wondering like, why is the student choosing to do this? One reason could be, you know, they are under some constraints because they're, they're in the school all the time and the school has expectations for what they're supposed to do and what students are supposed to learn. And, you know, there's testing pressures and all these other pressures that we don't have to worry about in the university world, but they do have to worry about there. And so they may choose to engage in a set of moves that we would not think of as exploring student thinking, 
but there might be really reasonable reasons why they're doing that. They know there's a test on that coming up, or they know there's a, they know that's what the teacher in their host classroom is really emphasizing that they learn this procedure and that they put the answer in a final form that looks like a mixed number and they don't leave it as an improper fraction. And we were thinking about like those competing tensions. And what our project did, I think, is take a situation in which a, a typical field placement you know, a student might be able to do their exploring student thinking stuff with us. They might be able to go to their host placement, do something totally differently and not really experience much cognitive dissonance because they just kind of get enculturated into that world. This is what I do in this context. This is what I do in this context and not even realize that those are competing. I think that in our project, because they had to do that same work in the same space where they were doing work where they're like, okay, Dr. Webble wants me to do this, these exploring moves with these kids. So I'm going to try to do that. But at the same time, my teacher wants me to do this other thing. Now that conflict's kind of like right in their faces. It's very present in what the work that they're doing. So I think that's why, especially in the fall semester, which we don't talk as much about in this paper, there were concerns expressed about that. Like I'm concerned that I'm teaching my kids or I'm you know working with my kids and I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm not really teaching them because I'm just asking them all of these open-ended questions and like, when do I get to tell them you know, how to actually solve these problems? And so they felt that tension in a really salient way. And I feel like maybe that, it needs to happen at some point. And maybe in our old way of doing these things, that tension never even got raised. So maybe that tension needs to get raised. And then we need to really walk students through it and think about, okay, well, what is the pressure that you're facing? And why is that pressure there? And who's putting that pressure on? And, and let's think, think of it a little bit more critically about that. And I don't know that we got there in this project, but it is raised a lot of questions of how do we help our pre-service teachers who are going to go out and be in this world where there are pressures, all those pressures exist, and are we helping them really navigate and negotiate those pressures before they get into them? So that's the question that kind of this is leaving me thinking about for just future any, any classes that we, that we have, not just ones where we get this opportunity to be embedded in a school. Yeah, I believe our principal teacher is a, a school teacher as well as their lifelong learner, lifelong like a mathematics learner. So in math methods course, uh, we might focus on and cover a variety of uh, pedagogical content knowledge and practices. Of course, we value one of the uh, five strands of mathematical proficiency, which is uh, the productive disposition that refers to the habitual inclination to see math as useful and worthwhile. However, it will be difficult to develop it without actual experiences and reflections. In this study, we did not measure their change of disposition to teaching mathematics, but I do think uh, the extensive in interaction have a potential to change it substantially, which evidenced by their course evaluations. So because to change beliefs takes time. Mm -hmm. When they experience a small success of teaching from the iteration of math bodies day by day, they can experience invisible things such as a self-reflection of their teaching and the relationship with the kids and teacher and their belief and attitude about to teaching math. So based on these findings, uh, I think these are my takeaways and contribution and the next step I can take in the future. So it sounds like that Anybody who is interested in some form or another of doing math buddies, whether it's as intense as you did or even just a once a week kind of thing, could benefit from reading this paper and adapting some of those ideas. Any concluding thoughts 
There is one other piece I don't know that I mentioned is that is like kind of the feedback piece. And we did talk about in the paper, we talked a little bit about we did when they submitted their screencast. I think it was two or three times over the semester where they submitted a screencast and we would give like direct feedback on that. That's another piece I'm thinking. I know that the feedback is really important. What we noted in the two cases is that one of the pieces of feedback was more about critique is too hard of a word, but like, let's talk about the moves that you made in this particular interaction. And another one was like, let's, here's a way that you could extend this, or here's some other, other things you could do. And it wasn't as much like a critique of what this, what the preservative teacher had done. And so we're trying to think about like, what's the bad, what, I guess the general question is, how do you give feedback on this in a way that, you know, is supportive of what they're trying to do and, but still also, you know, gives them some, a vision for what this could look like. So we're still thinking about what kind of feedback really is. It uh, seems to me that you should sit down with them and screencast your feedback and then analyze oh, that. Nice. <laughs> we did do an analysis of the feedback that we gave, but it was just written feedback, right? It was yeah. feedback in the in our learning management system. So we do have a sense of like, and one of the things we tried to do was really, really specific. So here's the thing you said, here's another option for what you could have said. Or one thing I like to do at the end of a problem like this is change the problem a little bit so that it makes, you know, see if they can use the structure of the problem in a different way or like extend their thinking in this particular way. But yes, that would be a really, uh, really interesting to, to sort of record that as well. You know, another thing that was fun about this, like it was so fun to just be there in the school and like just kind of meandering around and sitting down with these interactions. And, you know, I, I was pretty liberal with, I would just jump in and like ask the students some questions, ask the teachers some questions, and then like debrief afterwards. It was just like, that was one of the things, like it's just the joy of like exploring kids thinking. And that's why I really, I wanted to impart as much as anything else. It's like, this is really fun to well, how did you get that answer? Or what did you do like that? It was kind of an amazing, an amazing solution and took us a while to unpack it and understand what you were saying. But once we understood it, it was, it was amazing. Those interactions where I jumped in, we had those, some of those on tape. Right? We have those, we recorded some of those because the, the screencast is going. So that would be interesting too, just to, just to take a look at some of those ones where it was not just the pre-service teacher and the student, but the pre-service teacher, the teacher educator and the student all talking together about yeah. thinking. So you see kind of the mentoring and the modeling and that kind of thing happening at the same time, just interacting with the student. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you for having us. And for further information on this topic, you can find the article on the Mathematics Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Ava Thanheiser. Thanks for listening and goodbye.